Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational with a very croaky Kath and Hannah. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. Welcome to the show. So what's in the agenda today, Hannah? In data, we're going to speak about the impact of COVID on examinations. In teaching and learning, we've got an interview with David Gumbrill about resilience and also some information about his upcoming book. In Pupils Causing Concern, we're going to share some of your funny stories. And in any other business, we're going to speak about upcoming episodes. And our next episode is going to be with Pure Wellbeing Arts. So we spoke to the lovely ladies, Ruth and Louise, and you'll hear more about that later. So let's get on with the podcast. In data, we're going to be talking about the impact of COVID on examinations. So Hannah, you've got some statistics you're going to share with us first of all. Yeah, the unions shared some statistics on Twitter a few days ago and it talks about, so it says the the Office for National Statistics latest infection survey shows that secondary age pupils now have the highest rate of infection of any age group. So that's including adults as well. So this, I know, so particularly from a secondary teacher's perspective, I've kind of taken the secondary teacher's kind of slant on things and it says here that the NEU is concerned that the continued trajectory of infection rates in schools and colleges will make this lockdown much less effective and not make the sacrifice worthwhile so I looked at the figures for how much hospitality contributes to new COVID infections and it's significantly less it was something like 13% last time I looked at it which was maybe a couple of weeks ago and school and colleges were at about you know 40% so shutting down the hospitality industry for a lockdown when schools are seem to be the, the biggest generator of, of new infections seems a bit strange. So it says um, this, the concern is heightened by the SAGE finding that children aged 12 to 16 played a significantly higher role in introducing infection into households in the period after schools reopened their doors to all students. So it seems like students are contracting it in school and then taking it home to their wider family and 
We are also troubled by new evidence from Public Health England showing that the positivity rate amongst school-aged children is extremely high. So for secondary-aged children, it's around 18%, and for primary-aged children, it's 12%. Now, I couldn't find what that means. I don't know whether that means 18% of secondary children across the country or not. So I'd, I'm not sure where those figures have come from, but it says that it's extremely high. So the NEU call on the government to play a much more active role to suppress the transmission of COVID within schools. Schools have gone to great lengths to make themselves as safe as possible, but there is only so much that they can do on their own. We put forward a 10 point plan in June with suggestions, including hiring additional space and teachers to reduce class sizes. More recently, we have put forward ideas to enable social distancing in schools through the use of rotors up for older secondary school pupils. All these suggestions were ignored. Schools have been given inadequate advice, more often than not delivered at the last minute and with no additional funding. The situation is untenable and widespread disruption will continue unless the government takes steps to get coronavirus under control in schools. And that last statement about funding and the current situation, this is what's made me so worried about students who are doing exams this year because it's not it's not just students in secondary school, it's college age student, it's it's students who are in university and then also in primary school there's lots of calls to stop the SATs this year. So I know you were going to speak a bit more about primary schools and some of the impacts that we had there. Um, what I found really interesting is that um, the NEU has actually said that we just need to get rid of SATs this year and um, to an extent I really agree with that. I think in terms of the SATs data it's really useful for secondary teachers to see kind of where they're at according to SATs but it's not always the most useful information. For me as an art teacher it's pretty useless completely <laughs> but I, I often find it's more important for me to know their reading age than it is to know their SATs results. What I think is really important is um, a lot of the data and a lot of the research is saying that students are falling behind and have fallen behind because of this lockdown. And I know lots of people are concerned about that. But if we're focusing on something like SATs, we're teaching to a test and we're not teaching the skills or preparing students for the next stages of learning. And I think I've seen that from experience over the years. So when I sit down with um, year seven parents at parents evening the first question I always ask is how often did your student do art in primary school and often the response is well they haven't done it since year four because after year four they're focusing on SATs and that really troubles me because that means that children aren't being creative for two whole years and often you'll hear from students oh we'll do some drawing if it's part of a project but that's not the same as being creative or learning art so I think um, rather than focusing on an examination or coming up with some st statistics, what we should be doing is looking at the learning that children need at primary school, trusting teachers to come up and understand what those needs are, and then getting those students ready for the transition from primary school to secondary school, because that information and knowledge is gonna be really powerful for them and enable them to make progress in their life because the SATs are a measure for one period in time in their education and it's not necessarily the most important point of their education. I think the other thing that I found really troubling about some of the primary school research 
um, I think you mentioned it to me, Hannah, about when we're looking at the measures of primary school students, we're not just looking at SATs, we also have to look at things like socialization, hygiene, play, communication. And the head of Ofsted mentioned something about using a knife and fork. So children have come back from lockdown and they can't use a knife and fork. And Hannah and I were saying, one of our worries is where's the line there between parenting and teacher? I don't see it as a parent. I don't see it as a teacher's responsibility to teach a child to use a knife and fork. I think that's my job. I've got to teach them table manners. I've got to get them to sit at a table and cut properly and hold their knife properly and not swing their knife around or poke themselves in the eye when they're eating. All of those things are my job or my husband's job as parents. So um, I think that's really interesting. And I also, the other one I think was, was a potty training. Yeah. Hannah, they talked about um, that there's children coming back, not being able to, they're not potty trained anymore. or They're not um, toilet trained like they should be trained. And again, that's not a teacher's responsibility. Teachers encourage it. Teachers um, praise students when they've made that developmental step, but it's not really the responsibility of a teacher to be in charge of all of those things. The next thing they're gonna put us in charge of is, oh, you didn't make sure that child showered and brushed their teeth before bed. Um, <laughs> that's not my job as a teacher, unfortunately. I can encourage it when I have conversations with them at school, but that's not my job as a teacher. I think as well, the curriculum's so jam-packed with things. And that's why you find that subjects like music and art tend to get left behind. Not Maybe not just because the, the curriculum is packed. Maybe it might be because they've not got specialist teachers in that area. And it is quite a specialist subject. I suppose there are some subjects that are quite difficult to teach unless you're a specialist. But it seems like a lot of those non-essential, non-core subjects are squeezed out for the benefit of things like reading, writing, and numeracy. Mm -hmm. And I've just looked up the statistics now, and apparently 16% of adults in this country are considered functionally illiterate. Whoa. So 16%, and I also read a, a figure quite a while ago, something like the, the son aims their language towards the reading age of a nine-year-old because um, the people who read the son the vast majority of them don't have a reading age above that. So if we're... Explains a lot, really. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're saying that 16% of adults are functionally illiterate and schools are spending so much time dedicating hours and hours a day hammering these students with literacy and numeracy and what's the benefit if we're still churning out people who are still unable to read above the age of nine um it's so interesting because I, th I think literacy and numeracy need to go beyond the classroom and um i think we've talked on the podcast before about um that book that i love called why kids don't like school and one of the things they talk about is those students that don't have contextual knowledge so at home there are disadvantaged students that don't have conversations with their parents and they don't read with their parents um, and they don't do things that help them to contextualize their knowledge. So some of the things that we would do with um, our little one, things like we, he, we make him wear a watch and tell the time and just randomly during the day we ask him what the time is. 
just so that he's got used to telling us when the time is or we'll say can you let us know when it's 4 p.m so that he keeps looking at his watch and checking for the time or baking because then we're getting him to count so it might be going oh we need half a cup of this so he understands fractions because that's why it's important to know what a whole and a half is and all of that contextual knowledge makes a child learn informally and then have a love of learning but then they can also put all that information together later on and then develop more complex reasoning and the students who are not doing that at home with their families they're the ones that usually struggle in school because they don't read outside of um, their subjects so if we're just looking at literacy and numeracy by themselves without context kids aren't going to understand them very well um, I was speaking to a maths teacher a long time ago and we were talking about, I was asking her what I could do to incorporate numeracy into an art curriculum. And she said, just simple things like counting because kids get out of the habit of counting. And then because they've gotten out of the habit of counting, then trying to do algebra is a real stretch. So even if you're doing something as simple as counting or talking about a line of symmetry in an artwork or just really basic transferable knowledge, they understand what that looks like and not just know it in an abstract form. So I think when we're looking at all of this catch-up curriculum and making sure students are developing it, um, cognitively we have to think about the context we shouldn't be just thinking well we want to get them ready for exams because they've got to pass that exam it's about making them understand literacy and numeracy in context as really great adults in society yeah because practice makes perfect and if you do something over and over again that will help but if you then do that in a different format it contextualizes that knowledge so students then have a better and a rounder understanding of whatever that might be. So we did musical adding up the other day with year seven and we were adding up, each note lasts a certain amount of beats. So we were adding up one beat note, a quarter beat note and a half beat note and students couldn't add a quarter to a half. They didn't know what that added up to. And it amazes me that the amount of time that is dedicated in primary and secondary to numeracy and then unable to add up fractions at age 11, I find that quite difficult to understand considering the amount of time that's taken away from all the other subjects. Because I know that when students have been taught music in primary school, it's so clear if they've had a music education, even if it's just once a week, consistently through primary school, they'll come to me and they are miles above the rest of the class. And it's great to see, but that's just on an hour a week. So on, you know, five hours a day or three hours a day or however many hours that are dedicated to those core subjects. Why are students not able to do those simple things? I remember Ellie Dix was talking about a number line and when she was teaching some of her secondary pupils how to count on a number line and how to count negative numbers, they must have learned that at some point. And at some point, they've either forgotten how to do it or they never learned it in, in a way that embedded it in their, in their memory. So how can we do these things and make sure that students can embed them? Well, teaching them to a test is not the way. I think what you were saying about contextual knowledge getting students to do it in different contexts is much better than that. This also leads into what I think we need to do with assessment as well. Um, one of the things I really liked about assessing students in Australia is that we had lots of different test instruments and it was kind of, well it wasn't kind of, it actually was something that was specified by the exam boards or the Board of Education. 
that you had to test children in lots of different ways. So you could have an exam, you could have a portfolio, you could do a an oral a speaking task, you could do a presentation. So there's all these different things that they suggest. And at the moment, we're talking about not really knowing what's going to happen with assessment for next year. Wales has obviously cancelled their exams for 2021, which go Wales. Well done you. Um, I don't know about you, Hannah. I, I'm really lucky because we have the NSEAD for art and they've really made things very clear for Ofqual and all the people they've consulted with. And they've said the best thing for us to assess students is, with is component one, which is the portfolio of work. So we don't have an exam for art for 2021, which I'm quite grateful for. And thank you, NSEAD, for fighting for that for art teachers, because I think art teachers collectively sighed in relief when we found that out. Do you actually know which exams are going ahead or which sections of your exam are going ahead and which aren't yet? I do now. So we got told about, maybe it was about two or three weeks ago, that what's happening now is in music we have an exam we have then four pieces of coursework so two compositions and two performances and those compositions and performances have a certain length to them so now i found out that instead of doing two compositions we're doing one and they have a shorter length and instead of doing two performances we're doing one of shorter length the exams stay exactly the same so the coursework element has been halved which is it's a great relief because when you're thinking about students who have been off isolating, I know in many schools across the country, there will be children who have come in for the first two weeks of school and maybe somebody in their class or their bubble has contracted COVID. So the whole bubble goes off and then they might come in for a couple of days and then somebody in the next bubble contracts COVID and they have to go off again. So there, there will be pupils who may be between September and mid-November who've maybe had a couple of weeks in school maximum and for a coursework subject or a subject that does controlled assessment it's just not good enough because I I don't know what we're able to submit when it comes to next year when we've got to submit all the coursework in May but when the students submit it usually we can apply for special circumstances I don't know whether we're able to do that for students who've been off continuously for COVID and then what about those students who've had who've been seriously affected, whose parents might have got seriously ill, or whose grandparents might have died, or some? You know, we don't know what's happening with those students because normally you can apply for special circumstances for students who have a, a close family member pass away, and there's alleviances for that. But I don't know what's going to happen this year because it's never been something that um, I have had a direct influence or had a direct involvement in. So it would be interesting to see what staff are doing for those students who are going to be affected by COVID and how that's going to look on an exam paper or on results day. So if you've got any idea about what's happening with, you know, with regard to special circumstances or students who might have had a lot of time off due to COVID, please let us know, send us some information, find us on Twitter at noncontacttime or on Instagram the same or noncontacttime at gmail.com. It'd be really interesting to talk about what types of things your school's putting in place so that we can share that information and all other schools can have access to that. So one of the things that troubles me is that we're nine weeks into the school year and obviously we've had the exam seasons extended by three weeks, but because the government's taken so long and the Department of Education's taken so long to advise us on what's happening and what's not happening, 
what concerns me is that all of a sudden they'll turn around and say something like we're going to cancel exams like Wales or we're going to change the way we're going to test these children they aren't giving teachers enough time to prepare children for changes in assessment and I think that's going to be the big impact on the children this year or the students this year in terms of examination. If you are going to change an assessment to an entirely course-based assessment, I mean, we knew before the summer, which was quite good, and we could change our assessment accordingly. But if you were going to do that for another subject and you've been used to not having coursework, that's a problem. If we're going to go on teacher-assessed grades, and teachers have only done certain sections of exam papers or even teachers not having enough time to plan high quality assessment because I know from people I work with and people I've spoken to that depending on the mock some mocks are really good and they're past papers and they're fantastic but this new specification's only been around a short amount of time so the resources to be able to do that are finite so to be able to have really high quality assessment over a long period of time where you're assessing them a lot, it's not really possible for every school and every subject and every teacher to be able to do that. And also think about inexperienced teachers, NQTs, if they haven't gone through this exam process for years and years and years, like some old people like me, they're gonna find this kind of constant assessment, constant tracking, more difficult than others. So I think the government needs to make a decision either way, what's happening, really clear plan, so that as teachers can actually, as professionals, sit down and go, here's a really good broad balance curriculum. Let's prepare the kids for it. Let's prepare them also for tertiary higher education, because that's also what we're preparing them for. We're not just preparing them for exams. Yeah, and I don't understand why we're not being told in advance these things because if we got told in advance, like you said, we could prepare resources that were adequate and, you know, you could network with other teachers and find out what they're doing. It's a great opportunity. But if they leave it to the last minute, you have a stressful time trying to create those resources yourself. People don't want to share them because they've worked so hard on them. And you get this system where it's not good for the pupils. The only pupils that are advantaged by that are those who have maybe a teacher who's privy to information that the rest of us don't know and why don't they trust teachers in advance I feel like before when the exams were cancelled it was like they didn't want to tell us that exams weren't happening because they thought all of a sudden teachers would just not do their jobs and it's just not it's not professional it's not what professionals would do it's grossly inappropriate to suggest that a whole profession would not take that information sensitively and do Mm. what they are supposed to be doing and what they are employed to do, which is to make the best situation possible, enable those learners to go on to the next steps of their education. And obviously, as we found out, the whole algorithm that they used was an absolute nightmare. And it gave students high grades when they shouldn't have got them and students low grades when they should have got better. And there are students still now who are unable to go on to do medicine even though they'd worked so hard for those grades, they're not allowed to do it at college or at university because they didn't get the algorithm grades that they should have got. So I I just think it's appalling that the government wants to use this excuse that we want to make it fair whilst they're making it less fair. And as a teacher, 
seeing the system from the inside and knowing that the students don't have a voice we're their only voice and mm. we need to have a system where we can stand up for those pupils and I know the union has talked about the kind of COVID guidelines and the steps that they want to take and the government are taking no notice of it but with exams I feel like it's even worse because the government are using Michael, uh, not Michael Gove, I'm getting mixed up now because <laughs> he, he, was, he uh, ruined he, education way <laughs> before this happened, Hannah, that's why. He's just stuck in my mind, I just can't get over it. Um, Gavin Williamson put in a tweet that the best way, the fairest way to get students to the next stage of their education or to get the next stage through life is by using standardised testing and everybody oh. who's ever known the pitfalls of standardised testing knows that that is not an accurate statement. I just think that the big, the key message here is that I would just like more clarity. I would like to know why we're doing these assessments because if we're just doing the assessments as a measure of the school, then they have no, they have no value in a COVID climate. We need to be thinking about the students. We need to be thinking about the stages of their learning and making sure they get there. And if we can do that through contextualized learning, that's fantastic. But if we're just doing testing for the sake of testing as a measurement, then it's completely redundant. I agree. In Teaching and Learning, we're talking to David Gumbrell about resilience. Take a listen. So these are our five kind of questions we ask everyone. So describe teaching to you, David. Everything. Um, or enough to enough to give out give up a very well-paid job to look after the next generation of teachers because I believe that teaching is going the wrong direction. And I believe that I could do something about it and need to do something about it. And so teaching means that much to me that I'm willing to, you know pretend or at the time potentially um, put myself in uh, in financial stuck um, in order to try and help the next generation of teachers come through to be creative teachers to be teachers with passion to be teachers that want to be in the classroom to teachers that love teaching and I'm not seeing a lot of that um, or I wasn't seeing a lot of that and that means that well, teaching to me means too much to just let that drift um, and allow teaching to become compliant and data-driven, all of the things that I kind of fight against because I just don't agree with it. So that's what teaching means to me. It's kind of almost a rebellion against the system, but wanting to try and help the next generation to fight against the system or the direction of travel that I feel it's going in. And what's the best type of student to teach from your perspective? Well, when I came out of my governor's meetings, I used to find the kid that's got the joie de vie. I used to find the kid that was excited about nettles or excited about cracks in the pavement, excited about life, excited about learning, curious about everything, because that's basically me. Um, I'm, I inquire within upon everything. I get interested about all sorts of anything, literally anything I can get excited about and interested in. And I want kids to be like that too. And there's always one. Every class has got one. They're the best kids that are the ones that make you feel great, make you feel wanted, make you feel you're making a difference. 
but make life feel better than it actually is because they've got the innocence of childhood and the excitement of curiosity and you think wow i remember when that life was that cool um and they're the kids that we need to hone in on and and what going back to my previous answer what frustrates me is that we're losing these kids because these kids aren't allowed to explore their curiosity and the fun is being removed and i don't hear teachers laughing and i don't hear teachers having fun it's all got a bit serious but the fun curious child is the children that i want to bring up in this education system so true about the laughing i've been saying that quite a lot recently particularly in these strange times being in a classroom at the moment isn't particularly fun and all the fun things have been removed so um, a science teacher the other day was telling me that she had to do this caffeine experiment in front of this low set bunch of boys and they had to watch her drink a can of coke and then wait and then she had to do a test but they could only watch it because of covid <laughs> So she's like, it was so dull. And I was like, well, you can do it at home, but yeah, you're just going to have to watch me do it. So right now there's a lot of fun that's been removed from the classroom. I completely agree with that. And I think that we can blame COVID for that, but I also think that we can blame, we've got to take control of that. So it's about controlling the controllables and yes, COVID's yeah. here. We can't get away from that fact, but we can still engage students in learning and we can still get kids excited about learning and students yeah. excited about learning and curious about the world in which they live and you know drinking a can of coke in front of a group of teenagers is not going to go well really um, <laughs> it's not it's not a, it's not in the teacher manual for good learning really yeah and i think that's it like trying to get them to be excited is so much harder for us now <laughs> i don't disagree it's difficult but I do believe that we can still do it. Yes. Um, uh, and I don't want people to give up on it just because they can they can di uh, disassociate themselves from it or depersonalize it and blame it on something else. I think yeah. we've got to learn the new tactics and good teachers will be able to make Zoom links work. Good teachers will make team learning work. Good teachers can teach with a mask on. Good teachers can teach with a visor on because good teachers are good teachers. That's so true. I definitely agree with you on that. So when you were in the classroom, what was your pet peeve? What did you hate students doing that really annoyed you? Um, I, there's so many. <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> um, I, I, I think I was I, I kind of partly joking when, um, as a head teacher, I used to get very frustrated with pencil cases that were the size of suitcases that didn't have anything of use within them um, and they were had pretty much 55 shades of gel pen and they had 25 smelly pencils and they had 55 rubbers of various sizes but asked them to get some you know, pencil out and write something in their book oh, i haven't got that um <laughs> so it was all beautiful pencil cases that were giant and big but actually within they were vacuous tardises of nonsense um, and what I wanted them to have was a pencil to get started and write you know um, so yeah I guess that pet peeve I think that's what the kids would say um, of my school because I was I banged on about it all the time I guess so I think that's what it was um, and then I just 
don't get I just don't get kids that you know just don't want to be there you know I don't get kids that just feel that fighting it is the way forwards um I want I, I well it goes back to the students best to teach the ones that get excited but I guess that's the challenge of teaching is getting the ones getting them on board and getting them excited about learning um, but no, I'm going to go with pencil cases are my pet peeve. So thank goodness for squiggle going down the pan. <laughs> um, so what do you do to look after your mental health or to unwind after a particularly tough day? Well, it's a tough gig, isn't it? Being a resilience coach and having to live, it, live the dream. Um, but I mean, when I came out of Headshot, they said to me, I connected with this Australian professor of resilience and I thought wow I've hit the jackpot here um, he knows everything you know he's got a doctorate of, of cleverness um, and and I said so what's resilience then and he said it's very simple David you, you, you uh, look after your sleep uh, second thing you do is look after your sleep and the third thing you do is look after your sleep so um, I followed that principle and I do look after my sleep and it's, it's deeper than and wider than that um, in as much as trying to get that sleep because it's about caffeine intake, it's about getting some oxygen in your lungs, it's about balancing up mental and physical health and it's all about that. So he's right, but it's deeper than that. So I spend a long time connect with, connecting with people. I'm surrounded by good people um, to lift me up when I need to be lifted up and um, to put me back in my place when I'm getting too, too big for my boots. Um, I go for walks and get exercise balance that physical mental stuff out I'm curious about everything so I read lots and 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 uh, get involved in all sorts of weird and wacky projects um, so that's how I do it but I know that I'm really lucky that I live in a nice house with a lovely family and not everybody's got that so particularly during COVID I feel very guilty that I'm able to do this stuff um, but you asked the question of how I do that, and that's what I do. I, I manage my sleep, and I guess that most people can do that. Yeah. Do you it know, is. we've had quite a few people this season talk about sleeping as a big part of it. This, it's really interesting. Last season, everyone was talking about debriefing. This season, everyone's like, sleep. Definitely <laughs> sleep. <laughs> it is so important, though, because there's a lot, a lot of um, teachers who I've heard from who talk about when they're anxious, they find sleep the most difficult thing to do because they wake up in the night thinking about things that they need to do for tomorrow. And there's loads of strategies to kind of help with that, but it's still one of those things. It's, it's so important, isn't it, to have an unbroken period of, of time where you can actually really rest your mind and body. Absolutely, and I think that's a really important point that what's happened is that the, the job has become smorgasbord attention, or you can eat buffet. And we've allowed that to encroach. So we've allowed notifications to ping on our phones. But I was a head teacher that never had notifications on my phone because there was nothing ever that people wanted to phone me for. There was nothing ever anyone wanted to email me for that I actually needed, apart from two occasions. The first day of my headship when I closed the school for snow and the second day of the headship when I closed the school for the second time because the snow hadn't gone anywhere. Um, but apart from that, when I needed the caretaker to phone me because I couldn't get to the school, I didn't need anybody to phone me. There was no need to phone, but we've allowed it to encroach. But what we're not then doing is unwinding. 
So we, we, we go home and then we get on our WhatsApp year five dream team, you know, smorgasbord, all you can eat nonsense. And then we constantly sending each other messages and then we constantly feel we should be on there and alert and doing. But what we should be doing is winding down. What we should be doing is connecting. What we should be doing is cooking a nice meal. What we should be doing is watching a bit of rubbish telly to wind down, having a bath, chilling out, getting ready for getting ready for sleep. And I mean that genuinely, getting ready for sleep. So we get a decent night's sleep and we can go back and be, you know, that teacher, that engaging teacher, that empathetic teacher, that Mr. Klukas who spotted it. He saw it. He, he was looking beyond the, the, the mask. Of, of, and you can't do that if you haven't looked after yourself. That's so yeah. true because there's more things that you can do with a, a well-rested night's sleep, especially me as patients. If a student comes to me and I've had a good night's sleep, I've got all the patients in the world. And if I haven't, I feel guilty because I feel like I'm not giving them the attention that they need, even though I am trying my best. And it is that it's challenging, but it is but important. But then that guilt, you're right, but then that guilt doesn't allow you to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And then you feel guilty. And then because you haven't had sleep, you don't, you don't manage relationships as well. Therefore, that takes time to repair because the relationships aren't going well. Yep. So you don't read the situation well. So then you start to worry about the relationships that you don't need to worry about. It's just you've misread the situation and therefore you don't sleep. And it, it, it becomes almost circuitous. So it's about breaking that. And that's what I've done. I've broken the system, of, I've broken the cycle of not sleeping and not being productive to being get some sleep, being productive, being happy because I'm productive, so I sleep. It's just yeah. So that's how I, that's how I do it. Brilliant. So here's the controversial question: What's one thing you'd like to change about education? Only one. Um, <laughs> only one. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> okay, only one. Um, well, the obvious one, the obvious one is Ofsted, and the total removal of Ofsted. Um, and I believe there should be accountability. I absolutely believe there's accountability to be had, but there needs to be local accountability. And I think local accountability is, is possible, doable, and peer, peer to peer gauging of accountability would be cheaper. And all of that money that is wasted on an inspector that is not needed or wanted could be pumped into schools and schools could release people, release the head teacher to go into another school and give a really good, really honest, really balanced view of where that school needs to go and give some positive advice of next steps. But what we've got is we've got a very expensive system that where someone goes in and they ruin that school with overly critical, overwielding power um, and leaving them with a sense of injustice, potentially, leaving them with a sense of doom and gloom, leaving them with a sense that they're not good enough, leaving them with a legacy of potentially three years of living with that, um, with that label. And it is just a label. And we wouldn't label children in this way. We shouldn't label children in this way, but we label schools in this way. And then we pretend that parents actually care about this label, but they don't because 
on the lo locally, what they care about is that there is a there, there are teachers that are connecting with their children, teachers that are connecting with them as the parent. And, you know, my judgment as a head teacher from the parents was really strong because I'm a people person and I was out there and I knew all the parents and I knew all the kids. But the Ofsted judgment didn't recognize that. And that's where we've gone wrong, I think. And I think it's scaring people out of the profession. I think lots of head teachers are left already and many more will leave during COVID after, after COVID settles down. Yeah. But I think that the inspector have got a lot to blame. And when they're coming out and saying, we're going to go back into schools and start testing in the autumn term, completely detached from reality, completely detached from um, empathising with what it must be like in schools right now. I'm yeah. still believing that despite no testing taking place at key stage two that the year sevens are no different to the year sevens they had previously and exactly. the and the secondary school children the secondary school children settled just as quickly and the year seven teachers haven't batted an eyelid that there's no testing who was the testing for the testing was for ofsted to judge the school yeah. incorrectly so i would put ofsted in room 101 um, absolutely, and I would lock the door, and I wouldn't. I would throw away the key. I think they're ruining the education system that I love, um, and they're ruining the teachers that I want teachers to be. Creative, mm. fun, enjoy. We're going back to what I said earlier. It causes such an unnecessary pressure on schools and governors and students and everyone in the whole community when they come in, and then it's the. The, dealing with the fallout. But what they're affirming is the wrong thing to affirm. Mm. What they're affirming is compliance. They're com so schools that are successful, generally speaking, this is a broad brushstroke, but it is measuring compliance. Who is best at following a set of rules? Yeah. Who is best on following a set of criteria and are willing to put the work in to create a school that follows that criteria? Now, there are exceptions to that rule, absolutely. But there's very little celebration of creativity. There's very little celebration of looking after staff. There's very little celebration of the joie de vie of the school and the community spirit. That's what we should be measuring. That's what we should be gauging. They don't measure staff turnover, but there are head teachers who are bullying their staff, driving them into the ground where they're offsted. They don't get recognized, they get celebrated for doing that, it doesn't get covered in the report. Staff turnover should be on the front page of an Ofsted report and then ask why that is happening. It will be workload, absolutely workload, um, and it will be teaching to Ofsted. Yeah, I agree. So what are your experiences in education? Well, I've, I've, I've been teaching for 27 years. Um, in five different primary schools um, across Surrey um, and I learned on the ground so I loved class teaching um, and uh, one very lovely colleague who I'm still connected with said David be careful if you got the leadership ladder what you'll miss the most is the class teaching and I went yeah 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 and I carried on climbing up the mountain and then I was like, oh, I miss class teaching now. I want to go back down the ladder. But it kind of forces you up the ladder. And I wanted to climb to the top. 
So I don't kind of regret that. Um, seven years as a head teacher, left headship about three years ago, and completely passionate about looking after the next generation of teachers. Started writing something called the Resilience Project. Uh, started writing about resilience, and then suddenly found out that everybody wanted to talk about this resilience thing, but no one knew what they were talking about. Um, so started off small and grew bigger and bigger, um, and now full-time writing and presenting on the theme of resilience. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where I'm coming from, really. Brilliant. So what part does resilience play in teaching and learning? Well, it should be central um, because happy children learn and happy children can't be happy children if teachers aren't happy. So happy teachers teach happy children or create happy children. But if teachers aren't happy, then that's not going to happen. So how can teachers be happy? Well, teachers have got to look after their own mental health in order to be able to look after the mental health of the students that they're working with. If they need the energy, they've got to get the energy. So mental health should be front and foremost of everything, but it's not. So my idea is that we need to open up the dialogue, open up the channels to have conversations about how are we feeling as human beings that be, and the idea that it's not a failing to be struggling but we should be celebrating positives and talking about mental health in staff room so the you know my book when i first came out wanted to be that kind of star to staff meeting book to talk about mental health and then have the staff meeting let's recognize the fact that we're all human beings we've all had a busy day we're all struggling to get through all of this stuff Let's talk about that bit first and then let's talk about semicolons for year two or let's talk about, you know, um, the latest Ofsted update because last week's inspection framework is different from this week's. That's important, yes, but it's the idea of we're just turning the tap on faster in the hope that more water goes into the bucket. But actually my take on that would be let's put the bucket under the tap first. <laughs> And by that I mean mentally get them in the right place and then turn the tap on. But we don't. We just turn the tap on really fast and hope for the best. So mental health is front and foremost. But what we've we got, we're going back from COVID and it's fast track. It's let's catch up on knowledge and subject and doing. But we're missing the elephant in the room. <laughs> We're missing in the psychological, talking about the psychological safety of the teachers, and we're missing out on the psychological safety of the children. And until we recognize those two things, we won't feel safe in our environment. And when we're not, we're not cognitively in the space. We're not teaching well. We are worried about who we are and are we safe? because our brain is going woo, 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 and all the children's brains are going woo, 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 and then we're going and semicolons children are really important they're not listening to semicolons are really important so pressing fast forward isn't working we need to press pause we need to allow people to build pauses into the day reflecting and thinking around where am i how well am i how well am i feeling how how good am i feeling where am I on my resilience scale? And then my catch-all question really is, okay, I'm a six out of 10. How can I be seven out of 10? How can I be one more 
Yeah, I've got to be one more. And I think if we can get to that, I think it's really important. Definitely. That kind of, that answer leads really nicely onto the benefits that it has in the classroom. So you've touched on a little bit about how that benefits students, but I think there's definitely more and we can dig deeper into that. And then how does that benefit teachers in the wider school community as well? I think everyone benefits when we all look after our mental health and we take responsibility for that. I think that we allow excuses to come in and we allow ourselves to get distracted from the core purpose. We uh, go into staff rooms and at lunchtime and they you know, constantly say, oh, I haven't got time to eat. Um, well, you have, because um, if you don't, your productivity is going to drop pretty sharply in the afternoon. Um, but it's become a social norm in some schools that busyness has become the trump card. Um, and actually it's not, you know, we've got to be better teachers because if we look after our basic needs, we are going to be a better teacher. It's simple. It, it goes together quite simply for me. And kids deserve a teacher in front of them that wants to be in that space. Not disgruntled because they haven't had lunch. Not fed up because they haven't had time to connect. Not you know they've been sitting in a meeting where they've been talking about semicolons they need time to energize themselves to have the energy that is teaching and teaching is hard teaching is energy sapping at the best of times but what we should be doing is topping that up all the time because it's like a ripple effect or it's like a chocolate fountain you know you've got to top yourself up yeah um in order to have enough chocolate to get down to the lower layers and what we're doing is we're starving ourselves with chocolate and going, oh, I don't know why those kids aren't connecting with me in this learning. Well, it's blatantly obvious. You're not putting enough chocolate into your system. And it, it's metaphorical chocolate, although chocolate can work. Um, <laughs> metaphorical chocolate cascading down. But we starve ourselves of chocolate and then are surprised when it doesn't get to those lower tiers, those tiers of kids that are disaffected, those kids that don't have the joie de vie. Um, and there will be some in every lesson because not everybody finds whatever subject it is exciting and engaging. But we don't get to that point. We just carry on regardless. We just work harder. We just work busier. We just give up more of our time. We give up more of our life. Um, and then are deeply resentful about that. Because when we get to half terms, we've got, you know, lem sipping uh, intravenous drip in one arm. We've got a Prosecco intravenous drip in the other arm going isn't teaching great it breeds resentment and that's not a good thing to do and that's why we've got a mass exodus of teachers and that's why 30 percent of teachers don't get through to the fifth year of their teaching and we're not recognizing it we're not dealing with it we're just piling more on so do you think there's anything that leadership teams can do that teachers can do and that um, parents maybe can do to help nurture that resilience? Absolutely. Well, leadership have got to take responsibility by leading by example. So they've got to stop sending emails at three o'clock on a Sunday. And the defense of that is normally, oh, I've sent it, but I'm not expecting a response. Yeah, but actually, you still sent it, which makes that person, that receiver, feel guilty. And that's yeah. not good because they're going for a walk with their family or they may be having a meal with their family, heaven forbid, and, um, and that's interrupted. And I think that there's a sense of the leadership trying to be busy, 
to prove their leadership. <laughs> and then that makes teachers be busy to prove their teachership. And then that makes the kids feel busy to be kids. But actually that's all wrong. And actually what staff, what leaders need to realize is that if you nurture your staff and give them trust and give them autonomy, they give it back to you in spades. If you allow them to top themselves up, then they're going to be better teachers the following day. So that's what I try to do. But we don't. But many schools don't. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I wrote Lift to to help head teachers do that. Why don't teachers do it? Because they want to be busy. They 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 want to be there for the kids, and they don't realise that they're not. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's one of the things, isn't it? As a teacher, you have a massive long list of all the things that you should be doing for each child, for each class, for each subject. <clears throat> and then you kind of, you could you could work on that to-do list. My PGCE tutor when I was training told me that you could write a to-do list and you'll never get to the end of it if you had all the hours in the whole wide world. If you had a time machine, you'd never get to the end. And like you said, I think it is down to leadership teams to lead by example and say, look, this is what is the priority or this is what we need to do. And anything on top of that, you know, it's a, it's a bonus. It's brilliant. But if you give staff that extra time or you allow them to look after their own well-being, then it won't be so much, oh, you're missing all these deadlines. They will offer voluntarily to produce that kind of extra documentation or the extra stuff that they need to do for their lessons just as part of the job because that's what teachers tend to do. That's what the people who I've met wanted to do. Yeah, I think teachers are that. And I think that I used to try and give staff time. So staff meeting time was time when I wanted something done. And so I would offer them the time to get that job done. Um, I would take a big group, I took the whole school for the afternoon to get parents evening started earlier so that we could go home earlier. Just little things where you think you recognize that time is needed and, and attention is needed. And when you give people time and attention, they do a good job. Um, but I also do think that it's not leadership's fault entirely, and I think teachers do don't don't help themselves at times. Um, and you know, I've mentioned the kind of WhatsApp groups and and all of that. And I think we have allowed it to encroach, and we haven't drawn a line. And we don't, you know, bags for life were made for teachers, weren't they, um, to carry all the book time, and then we leave them in the boot, and then we don't look at them, and then we take them back again. But what did we do that for? Was it to, so we could walk out the entrance not feeling guilty? Um, but we then go home and the, the books are calling going, mark me, mark me, as I meant to be sitting down for a meal. So it's actually causing problems. We should be stopping the stone down and mental health is number one, number two and number three. And then do semicolons at number four. I think that's it's true of of resilience i've also thought about it it's it seems like on a similar part of behavior if you get one aspect of it right then the teaching and learning will follow because every teacher's been trained how to teach effectively and if the students aren't ready to learn and if the teacher's not in the correct space to do the job properly then you end up like you said doing something that's kind of half put together and you're not able to reach your full potential or allow the children to reach their full potential Absolutely. It's about relationships. Teaching is about relationships. Teaching isn't about anything other than that. Teaching is about relationships. But if the teacher isn't spotting those relationships well, it's going to go wrong. Behaviour is going to go through the roof. 
if the kids aren't building relationships and haven't built a relationship with the teacher, they're going to be a pain in the backside and they're going to be very hard to manage. But we don't look out for and check in with and make sure we nurture relationships. But from that, behaviour is better. From that, learning is better. From that, marking is easier. From that, it's a happier space to be in where we can have fun and we can enjoy it and we can get more done. Um, but there's still a stigma attached to mental health and it's someone else got it. It's someone else's problem, not it's mine and I need to deal with it. It's someone else's problem. I like the analogy. We, we had somebody on in series one called Jackie. She was from ARC and she used the analogy that uh, mental well-being is a scale. So you're either at one end or you're you know, in the middle or you're at the other end. And I think that's so true because as a teacher, there are times in the school year that, that's full of high stress and I might feel that I'm you know, maybe empty of my well-being and I'm not looking after myself properly. And then you recognize it and then you move back towards the part of the scale that you feel more comfortable in and you feel like you are looked after and you feel like you can do a better job because you're in a better space. And I think if we see it like that and it's not necessarily a negative thing it's just this at this end I've got to look after myself and at this end myself looks after <laughs> looks after everybody else it kind of works it works for me in that respect I, I get that and I think that it's a good it's good to have a scale and I think it's a it's a nice analogy metaphor whatever um to have that scale um but I would want a more nuanced scale than all or every, all or nothing um so <clears throat> I would want you know, a scale of 10 just to give you that the, 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 the iterations between that because I think that what we need to do is we need to get small enough iterations to, to pick ourselves up quite quickly and so it's about okay I need to get from a 7 to an 8 and then knowing what to do to get from a 7 to an 8 and, and so you know you need to phone the cheerleader friend that's going to go yeah you're amazing oh thank you very much i just need i needed that okay put the phone down and i'm back on i'm back on at eight you need to know where to go to to get that one step further forwards so i think yeah a scale is good but a more nuanced scale of one to ten would be much easier to get those quick wins so what kind of advice would you give to a staff member that you came across that was running on empty and maybe a staff member that doesn't actually realise they're running on empty? Um, I would say that um, most teachers know that they're running on empty. <laughs> I think I th there was one definition that I once saw that was kind of um, notice, um, notice, the, notice the kind of sense within and then act on it. I think we all notice when it's there, but we tend to stick our head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. So if I noticed the teacher was running on empty and I regularly did this, I would just walk into the classroom and say, go home. Oh, wow. I would walk into the classroom and say, go home, leave your books here. Um, I won't come in tomorrow. Just go home. You need to top up. You, you, you're, on it. you're running on empty. This isn't helping. My NQTs used to get a little card that says, I'm an NQT, get me out of here card. Um, and they, they, only had a, they only had one and they were only allowed to play it once. But any time during the year, they were able to play that card and I would take their class. If I was a, if I was available, I would take their class and they could leave the building and I wouldn't ask any questions prior or post that visit. Um, I would just take the class. 
and the message was implicitly saying you matter if you recognize it in yourself i trust you and i'm here to help i think that's, that's amazing so, yeah that's so important just from from a teacher's perspective the lack of one thing the one thing that i need more of is time and that is a really kind of fabulous gift that you can give your staff to demonstrate that number one you care about them number two you want them to you know have good you know what you want the well-being to to be good and number three you know that that will then filter down onto the students and have an impact on them and i think it does make the world the workplace a better culture to kind of be in it also makes it more productive it also makes the job done better the job will be done better if you give it the time um, and if they feel like they have been given the time, they do it with a bit more aplomb, they will do it with a more energy, they will do it better. And therefore you get a better product and therefore you don't have to chase it and you don't have to chase the deadline because it's done. You know it's done and you know it's done well. So again, you save time, but in hindsight you save time. Yeah, it's that little bit of forward planning, isn't it? And anticipating and then you get the rewards, which are even better. It's, it, it's proactive, not reactive. You know, don't run a marathon and go, oh, I don't know how I've got achy legs because you haven't done any training. You know, it's the same thing. Don't don't say, oh, I don't know how I'm so exhausted. You're not, you're exhausted because you didn't manage your well-being. You didn't manage yourself. So it's about proactive, not reactive. It's about getting your sleep in before going, I'm tired. It's about eating before you're hungry. It's about drinking before you're thirsty. It's about thinking about it because it matters. Brilliant. Mm. So do you think there are different approaches to foster resilience in different settings like primary, secondary or further education? When I first came out of headship, I, I would answer yes. Three years down the line, categoric no. And the reason I know that now and I didn't know that then, is because I've realized that mental health is everybody and mental health is a trait of being human. And we're all human. We're all human beings that are trying to be teachers, whether that be secondary, primary, further ed, higher ed, any ed. We're all human beings trying to be teachers. The commonality of being a human being is we're all vulnerable. We're all imperfect and we've all got a little chimp in our heads that needs placating and nurturing and looking after. And if we if we do that, then we're going to be a better teacher at any level of teaching. So categorically, no, there is no difference at all. Everybody has got to sleep better, look after their basic needs in order to be the best teacher that they can be to teach adults, children, young people, young adults. It's a human, it's a human being thing. <laughs> it's not a key stage thing. So, <laughs> do you think that resilience can be taught or kind of um, modeled? Or do you think that some people are more drawn to or more naturally resilient than others? I don't believe it's a natural thing. I think it can be taught. And the reason I know that is because I've taught myself. So um, I've taught myself how to be resilient. I've taught myself how to look after myself. I've taught myself how to um, to build up my resilience and get myself up to a six and a seven and an eight most days. And then when I'm not that, 
I've got the friends and family around me that are going to bounce me back quite quickly. So I think it can be taught. I think you have to have a willingness to want to be taught. Um, but like all of these things, there is a reluctance to want to be taught. Um, that compassion is also self-compassion. Um, but I think you can convince people of that. And I hope you can, because otherwise I've wasted three years of my life trying to convince people and teach people about it. So I've got to be hopeful. I've got to be optimistic. You can teach people resilience. Otherwise, um, I've just wasted three years of my life. <laughs> so do you think there's anything that leadership teams can do uh, to support their staff and, and enable them to be more resilient? Talk about it in staff room. Give it time. Give it airtime. Give it credibility. Give it, give it honesty. Give it authenticity. Um, all of those things. Senior leaders could do at a click of a click of a button, the flick of a switch. Stop sending irrelevant emails. Stop CCing irrelevant emails to people who didn't give a monkey's what going on in someone else's email. Stop all of that nonsense. Stop trying to be busy when you're not busy. Stop trying to justify your busyness and your leadership by being busy. Look out for people. Make it back into a people game. Don't judge people. Nurture people. Get in the classroom and talk about the things that are going well. Get in the newsletter and celebrate your staff. Get into the parents and talk about the good things that are going on well. Be positive, be energizing, um, be people driven. I love that, that's brilliant. It's great. I love that too. Kath, I think there got... needs to be a lot more of it. Yeah, definitely. Have you got any more questions, Kath? I do. I wanted you to um, just tell us a little bit more about the Resilience Project. How did it start and kind of what does it look like now? Okay, so the Resilient Project started pretty much, um, well, my school was connected to the local teacher training university and me being me just dived in straight straight into it and said, okay, so um, what can we do to support early career teachers because too many are leaving and I can't accept that. Um, there's a disconnect between those that are coming out of education, ITT and the teachers that are performing. And I took a hose lock, you know, those kind of, you know, the, the, the yellow kind of connector to the hose and to the tap. And I took that with me and I said, that basically defines the problem. There's a disconnect between the flow of teachers coming through and the expectations when they go out. And unbelievably, that got me the gig. And they said, oh, okay, let's write something together. So I basically wrote the Resilience Project, which was a series of, um, a series of talks or a series of questions I would then go and work with a student teacher uh, sorry an NQT um, and just coach them just talk to them about them as a human being encouraging them to look after themselves encouraging them to be proactive and encouraging them to sleep eat drink and be and connect with other people the feedback from that was overwhelming to the point where people were going, I couldn't have done it without it. I, it was the best thing I did in my training. It was the most important thing that we had. And then the Resilience Project kind of built from there because I suddenly realized that there was a real need for this stuff. And that, and that we give all the support in the world to NQTs, but we're not getting it right. <laughs> mm. Because the mentor is the judge and the jury, therefore they can't be both as there's a difficulty however good that is there's a there's a there's a there's a gap somewhere 
between being the judge and the jury. So this externalized support give, bring, brought something different. And that was the conclusion that we came to in the pilot project. And then that university and other universities are brought into that system. And then when we presented the resilience project and the findings, and basically stood up in front of a whole load of ITT programs and said, what we're doing isn't working. We need to try something else. This is what we need to be doing. Um, suddenly realized that we were onto something and then wrote lift off the back of that um, to try and distill it down into a book form that people could take on board. That was an essentially written for NQTs, but um, I soon realized that it wasn't an NQT thing per se, but my intention was it for it to be an NQT thing. Brilliant. Amazing. David, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I totally agree with you. And I'm sure our listeners will, that everyone benefits when we look after our mental health, our students, our staff, everyone. So thank you so much for talking to us today about resilience. Been an absolute pleasure and uh, I've loved every minute of it and if it helps one person to be more resilient or feel more resilient or they can take control it was time well spent. Fabulous thank you very much. In Pupils Causing Concern we're going to hear a funny story from David. Well a funny story that comes to mind is a biology teacher I used to have and it's not really that funny um, in as much as you wouldn't get away with it these days. And so I think it's something called the Heinrich maneuver or something along those lines. And it, it was a biology teacher. And basically he chose me as the volunteer and then tried to demonstrate to the rest of the class what the Heinrich maneuver does. Now, my memory is not great of that incident because I think I was trying to hyperventilate at the time. Um, but basically, he demonstrated the Heimlich maneuver on a living body of a student, which was me. Um, so <laughs> I blame that on the fact that I didn't do very well in A-level biology. <laughs> that, that must have He's hurt. PSD. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it did hurt, um, and I can't believe he got away with it. But you asked for a funny story, so you just brought back that yeah. very funny story from my mind. <laughs> I, I, I put it to bed Childhood and then trauma. It out again. Yeah. Yeah. I might need to counsel myself now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of things you wouldn't get away with these days when you think back to what but, happened in your education. I guess so, and uh, but maybe that's a good thing because I'm not sure um, it was right to do it in the first place. Um, so maybe there's some progress that's been made as well as some retrograde steps. Yeah, that's definitely. true. In any other business, we're going to hear from the ladies from Pure Wellbeing Arts and hear from them about their favourite teachers. It has to be my GCSE music tutor, or teacher, sorry, um, a lovely woman called Tor. She was phenomenal. And what I loved about Tor was that actually I wasn't taking GCSE music. Um, I was doing drama and, and other things. But five months before GCSE started, she said, 
Lou, you, you need to, you need to do this. I was doing peripatetic flute lessons. So I was involved, I guess, in the music department. And she very much sort of took me under her wing and taught me the GCSE music content out in her own time, outside of school time and got me through. And that's just because she saw something in me that made her think, wait a minute, you deserve this extra qualification and you deserve to have a chance at doing this. Just because you picked a different pathway on the GCSE option sheet, you know, I'm not going to allow you to get away without doing this. Um, and it was and it was wonderful. She really saw kind of right through me. I was quite a nervous, quite a, a quiet student in a lot of respects. And she really saw right through that and pushed me to do something. And I, I won't forget her positivity. She was incredible. Absolutely incredible. So Ruth, who was your favourite teacher? was way back at the beginning when my very first teacher she's the one who's made the most impact on me and I still can picture her now sweet Mrs Smythe um she was just so gentle kind caring but also she had the authority as well you know but but she just had that sort of nurturing I just felt so safe at school and I think that's just such an important thing when you start out in this new new thing of school when you are so little um she just yeah she just made it a really great experience from the start so mrs smythe is mine <laughs> oh that safety that safety net i really like hearing people's stories about their favorite teachers because i think everyone has that in common the teachers that they loved um in some upcoming episodes obviously we're going to hear an interview next week with the lovely ladies of pew wellbeing arts it's a really really great arts organization and they're creating resources for key stage two students so if you're interested in looking at that or hearing from them definitely check out next week's episode in other upcoming episodes, we're going to be looking at well-being again because you guys keep asking for it, so we keep talking about it. Um, so, and it's obviously really, really important. Um, you can still donate to us through our Patreon and through our Acast supporter. Um, I'm still looking for a new microphone. Tell me how this one is today. I have borrowed a microphone for today. So if you think I sound okay, maybe we'll continue on with this. But if you think I sound absolutely terrible, please, please donate because that would really help us out. And it just helps us with the running of the podcast too. Um, if you do become a Patreon, there's lots of extra resources. Um, there's some uncut episodes and some uncut interviews that you'll have access to. And we're hoping to throw more and more stuff up on on our Patreon in the future. If you'd like to get in contact with us about any issues, um, you can contact us on our social media. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, we're at non-contact time, or you can email us directly, noncontacttime at gmail.com. Please interact with us on Twitter and Instagram. We've got a competition running at the moment with David and his book about resilience. So if you want to win that book, all you need to do is like, share and tag three friends in the post. Find us on social media. I'll be putting it up every day on uh, Twitter and Cass put it up on Instagram. So find it and share it and hopefully you'll be in the running to win. It's a really great book and I'm really jealous because I can't enter myself. That'd be wrong. Is that wrong, Hannah? It's wrong for me to enter because I want to win it. Um, so if you want to be in the running, make sure you like, tag, share. Fab. See you next, well, in two weeks now. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Hopefully Bye. I'm better by then. Bye. <laughs>